This post is a reading of Christian Elliott's article, 18 Reasons I Won't Be Getting a COVID Vaccine. It was originally published on April 15, 2021, which indicates that he was ahead of the curve. He updated it in December of the same year. Number one, vaccine makers are immune from liability. The only industry in the world that bears no liability for in injuries or deaths resulting from their products are vaccine makers. First established in 1986 with the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act and reinforced by the PREP Act, vaccine makers cannot be sued even if they are shown to be negligent. The COVID vaccine makers are allowed to create a one-size-fits-all product with no testing on subpopulations, that is, people with specific health conditions, and yet they are unwilling to accept any responsibility for adverse events or deaths their products cause. If a company is not willing to stand behind their products as safe, especially one they rushed to market and skipped animal trials on, I am not willing to take a chance on their product. No liability, no trust. Here's why. Number two, the checkered past of the vaccine companies. The four major companies who are making these COVID vaccines are, have either never brought a vaccine to market before, that's Moderna, or serial felons, that's Pfizer, AstraZeneca, and Johnson & Johnson. Moderna has been trying to, quote, modernize our RNA, thus the company name, for years, but have never successfully brought any product to market. How nice for them to get a major cash infusion from the government to keep trying. In fact, all major vaccine makers, save Moderna, have paid out tens of billions of dollars in damages for other products they brought to the market when they knew these products would cause injuries and deaths. C. Vioxx, Bextra, Celebrex, Thalidomide, and opioids as a few examples. If co drug companies willfully choose to put harmful products in the market when they can be sued, why would we trust any product when they have no liability? In case it hasn't sunk in, let me reiterate, three of the four COVID vaccine makers have been sued for products they brought to market even though they knew injuries and deaths would result. For example, Johnson & Johnson has lost major lawsuits in 1995, 1996, 2001, 2010, 2011, 2016, and 2019. For what it's worth, J&J's vaccine also contains tissues from aborted fetal cells, perhaps a topic for another discussion. Pfizer has the distinction of the biggest criminal payout in history. They have lost so many lawsuits, it's hard to count. You can check out their rap sheet here. And I think he's referring to the Wikipedia page of shame that the drug companies uh, are all listed where they're, uh, you know, all their settlements and criminal, criminal settlements. Maybe that's why they are demanding that countries where they don't have liability protection put up collateral to cover cover vaccine injury lawsuits. AstraZeneca has similarly lost so many lawsuits it's hard to count. And they give several links. In case you missed it, 
the company had their COVID vaccine suspended in at least 18 countries over concerns about blood clots, and they completely botched their meeting with the FDA with numbers from their study, study that didn't match. Oh, and apparently J&J, whose vaccine is approved for, quote, emergency use in the U.S., and AstraZeneca, whose vaccine is not approved for emergency use in the U.S., had a little mix-up in their ingredients in 15 million doses. Oops. Let me reiterate this point. Given the free pass from liability and the checkered past of these companies, why would we assume that all their vaccines are safe and made, made completely above board? Where else in life would we trust someone with that kind of reputation? To me, that makes as much sense as expecting a remorseless, abusive, unfaithful lover to become a different person because a judge said deep down they are a good person. No, I don't trust them. No liability, no trust. Here's another reason. Number three, the ugly history of attempts to make coronavirus vaccines. There have been many attempts to make viral vaccines in the past that ended, ended in utter failure, which is why we did not have a coronavirus vaccine in 2020. In the 1960s, scientists attempt to make an RSV, that's respiratory syncytial virus, vaccine for infants. In that study, they stripped, they skipped animal trials because they weren't necessary back then. In the end, the vaccinated infants got much sicker than the unvaccinated infants when exposed to the virus in nature, with 80% of the vaccinated infants requiring hospitalization and two of them died. After 2000, scientists made many attempts to create coronavirus vaccines. So for the past 20 years, all ended in failure because the animals in the clinical trials got very sick and many died, just like the children in the 1960s. If you want to read the individual studies, I've attached the links. In 2004, attempted vaccine produced hepatitis and liver damage in ferrets. In 2005, mice and civets became sick and more susceptible to coronaviruses after being vaccinated. In 2012, the ferrets became sick and died, and in this study, mice and ferrets developed lung disease. In 2016, this study also produced lung disease in mice. The typical pattern in the studies mentioned above is that the children and the animals produce beautiful antibody responses after being vaccinated. The manufacturers thought they'd hit the jackpot. The problem came when the children and animals were exposed to the wild version of the virus. When that happened, an unexplained phenomenon called the antibody dependent enhancement or ADE, also known as vaccine enhanced disease, VED, occurred when the immune system produced a quote cytokine storm which is an overwhelming attack on the body and the children's or animals died. Here's the lingering issue. The vaccine makers have no data to suggest their rushed vaccines have overcome that problem. In other words, never before has any attempt to make a coronavirus vaccine been successful, nor has the gene therapy technology that is messenger RNA, quote, vaccines, been safely brought to the market. But hey, since they had billions of dollars in government funding, I'm sure they figured that out. Except they don't know if they have. Number four, the, quote, data gaps submitted to the FDA by the vaccine makers. 
When vaccine makers submitted their papers to the FDA for emergency use authorization, note that EUA is not the same as a full FDA approval. Among the many, quote, data gaps they reported that have not, they have not, was that they have nothing in their trials to suggest they overcame that pesky problem of vaccine-enhanced disease. They simply don't know. They have no idea if the vaccines they've made will also produce the same cytokine storm and deaths as previous attempts at such products. As Joseph Mercola points out, quote, previous attempts to develop a messenger RNA-based drug using liquid nanoparticles failed and had to be abandoned because when the dose was too low, the drug had no effect. And when dose too high, the drug became too toxic. An obvious question is, what has changed that now makes this technology safe enough for mass use? If that's not alarming enough, here are other gaps in the data, i.e., there's no data to suggest safety or efficacy regarding anyone younger than 18 years old or older than 55, pregnant or lactating mothers, autoimmune conditions, immunocompromised individuals, no data on transmission of COVID, no data on preventing mortality or deaths from COVID, no data on duration of protection from COVID. It's hard to believe, right? In case you think I'm making this up or want to see the actual documents sent to the FDA by Pfizer and Moderna for their emergency use authorization, I've I have attached the links. The data gaps can be found starting on page 46 and 48, respectively. For now, let's turn our eyes to the raw data the vaccine makers used to submit for emergency use authorization. So that brings us to number five, no access to the raw data from the trials. Would you like to see the raw data that produced the quote 90 and 95% effective claims touted in the news? Well, me too, but they won't let us see that data. As pointed out in the BMJ, British Medical Journal, something about the Pfizer and Moderna efficiency efficacy claims smells really funny. There were 3,410 total cases of suspected but unconfirmed COVID-19 in the overall study population. 1,500 occurred in the vaccine group versus 1,800 in the placebo group. Wait, what? Did they fail to do science in their scientific study but not by not verifying a major variable? Could they not test those, quote, suspected but unconfirmed cases to find out if they had COVID? Apparently not. Why not test all 3,410 participants for the sake of accuracy? Can we only guess they didn't test because it would mess up their, quote, 90 to 95% effective claims? Where's the FDA? Would it not be prudent for the FDA to expect or demand that the vaccine makers test people who have, quote, COVID-like symptoms and release their raw data so outside third parties could examine how the manufacturers justified the numbers? I mean, it's only every citizen of the world we're trying to take into these experimental products. Why did the FDA not request that? Isn't that the entire purpose of the FDA anyway? Good question. Foxes guarding the hen house? Seems like it. No liability, no trust. That brings us to number six, no long-term safety testing. Obviously, with products that have only been on the market a few months, 
we have no long-term safety data. In other words, we have no idea what this product will do in the body months or years from now for any population. Given all the risks above, risks that all pharmaceutical products have, would it not be prudent to wait and see if the worst case scenarios have indeed been avoided? Would it not make sense to want to fill in those pesky data gaps before we try to give this to every man, woman, and child on the planet? Well, that would make sense, but to have that data, they need to test it on people, which leads me to my next point. Number seven, no informed consent. What most who are taking the vaccine don't know is that because these products are still on clinical trials, anyone who gets the shot is now part of the clinical trial. They're part of the experiment. Those like me who do not take it are part of the control group. Time will tell how this experiment works out. But you may be asking, if the vaccines are causing harm, wouldn't we be seeing that all over the news? Surely the FDA would step in and pause the distribution. Well, if the adverse events reporting system was working, maybe things would be different. And that brings us to number eight, underreporting of adverse reactions and death. According to a study done in Harvard, at the commission of our own government, less than 1% of all adverse reactions to vaccines are actually submitted to the National Vaccine Adverse Events Report System, VAERS. While the problems with VAERS have not been fixed, as you can read about in an attached letter to the CDC, at the time of this writing, VAERS reported over 2,200 deaths from the current COVID vaccines, as well as close to 60,000 adverse reactions. Now, I'm just going to insert here now that it's well over 18,000, maybe 19,000 deaths by December with its uh, 800,000 adverse reactions, roughly. Okay, back to the document. VAERS data released today showed 50,861 reports of adverse events following COVID vaccines, including 2,249 deaths and 7,726 serious injuries between December 14, 2020 and March 26, 2021. And those numbers don't include what is currently 578 cases of Bell's palsy. And again, this is old. If those numbers are still only 1% of the total adverse reactions or 0.8 to 2% of what another study recently published in JAMA found, you can do the math, but that equates to somewhere around 110,000 to 220,000 deaths from the vaccines to date and a ridiculous number of adverse reactions. Now, uh, I'm going to insert here again, this is uh, from earlier in 2020, and this is far larger now. And anyway, bet you didn't see that in the news. Back to the document. That death number would currently still be lower than the 424,000 deaths from medical errors that happen every year, which you probably also don't hear about, but we are not even six months into the rollout of these vaccines yet. If you want a deeper dive into the problems with the VAERS reporting system, I have attached a couple of links. But then there's my next point, which could be argued makes these COVID vaccines seem pointless. Number nine, the vaccines don't stop transmission or infection. Wait, what? Aren't these vaccines supposed to be what they're, we've been waiting for to quote, go back to normal? Nope. 
Why do you think we're getting all these conflicting messages about needing to practice social distancing and wear masks after we get a vaccine? The reason is because these vaccines were never designed to stop transmission or infection. If you don't believe me, I refer you again to the papers submitted to the FDA I linked above. The primary endpoint, what the vaccines are meant to accomplish, is to lower your symptoms. Sounds like just about every other drug in the market, right? That's it. Lower your symptoms is the big payoff we've all been waiting for. Does that seem completely pointless to anyone but me? Number one, it can't stop us from spreading the virus. Number two, it can't stop the virus from infecting us once we have it. To get the vaccine is to accept all the risks of these experimental products and the best it might do is lower symptoms. Heck, there are plenty of other things I can do to lower my symptoms that don't involve taking what appears to be a really risky product. Now for the next logical question. If we're worried about asymptomatic spreaders, would the vaccine not make it more likely that we are creating asymptomatic spread? If it indeed reduces symptoms, anyone who gets it might not even know they're sick and thus they are more likely to spread the virus, right? For what it's worth, I've heard many people say the side effects of the vaccine, especially the second dose, are worse than catching COVID. I can't make sense of that either. I'm going to insert another quick uh, comment. No one has ever documented that the virus teleports. So until that happens, I don't think that it's possible to spread the virus unless you're symptomatic and coughing and putting aerosolized droplets into the air. Okay, back to the article. I can't make sense of that either. Take the risk, get no protection, suffer through the vaccine side effects, keep wearing your mask and social distancing, and continue to be able to spread the virus. What? It gets worse. Number 10, people are catching COVID after being fully vaccinated. Talk about a bummer. You get vaccinated and you still catch COVID. It's happening in New York State, Washington State, Michigan, Hawaii, and many other states. It happened to 80% of 39 nuns who got the vaccine in Kentucky. Two of them died, by the way. Those are links. In reality, this phenomenon is probably happening everywhere, but those are the ones making the news now. Given the reasons above and what's below, maybe this doesn't surprise you, but bummer if you thought the vaccine was a shield to keep you safe, it's not. That was never the point. If 66% of healthcare workers in LA are going to delay or skip the vaccine, maybe they aren't wowed by the rush science either. And again, this is dated earlier in 2020. I think more of them have gotten it, but there are a tremendous number of skeptics. Maybe they're watching the shady way deaths and cases are being reported. Number 11, the overall death rate from COVID. According to the CDC's own numbers, COVID has a 99.74% survival rate. Why would I take a risk on a product that doesn't stop infection or transmission to help me overcome a cold that has a 0.26% chance of killing me? Actually, in my age group, it has about a 0.1% chance of killing me and 0.01% chance of killing my kids. But let's not split hairs here. With a death rate that low, we'll be in lockdown every year forever. But wait, what about the 500,000 plus deaths? That's alarming, right? I'm glad you asked. Number 12, the bloated COVID death numbers. Something smells really fishy about this one. 
Never before in the history of death certificates has our own government changed how deaths are reported. Why now are we reporting everyone who dies with COVID in their body as having died of COVID rather than the comorbidities that actually took their life? Until COVID, all coronaviruses or common colds were never listed as the primary cause of death when someone died of heart disease, cancer, diabetes, autoimmune conditions, or any other major problem. The disease was listed as the cause of death and a confounding factor like flu or pneumonia was listed on a separate line. To bloat the number even more, both the World Health Organization and the CDC changed their guidelines such that those who were susceptible, suspected, suspected or probable, but never confirmed of having died of COVID are also included in the death numbers. Are they serious? If we're going to do that, then should we not go back and change the numbers of all past cold and flu seasons so we can compare apples to apples when it comes to death rates? According to the CDC's own numbers, which I've included a link to, comorbidities and other conditions, only 6% of the deaths being attributed to COVID are instances where COVID seems to be the only issue at hand. In other words, reduce the the death numbers you see in the news by 94% and you have what is likely to be the real numbers of deaths from just COVID. Even if the former CDC director is correct and COVID-19 was a lab-enhanced virus, see reason 14 below, a 0.26 death rate is still in line with the viral death rate that circles the planet every year. Then there's this Fauci guy. I'd really love to trust him, but besides the fact that he hasn't treated one COVID patient, you should probably know, reason 13, Fauci and six others at his agency, the NIAID, own patents in the Moderna vaccine. Thanks to the legislature, government workers are allowed to file patents on any research they do using taxpayer funding. Funding. Tony Fauci owns over a thousand patents, including patents being used on Moderna vaccine, which he approved government funding for. In fact, the NIH, which NIAID is part of, claims joint ownership of Moderna's vaccine. Does anyone else see this as a major conflict of interest or even criminal? I say criminal because there is also this pesky problem that makes me even more distrustful of Fauci, NIAID, and the NIH in general. Number 14. Fauci is on the hot seat for illegal gain-of-function research. What is gain-of-function research? It's where scientists attempt to make viruses gain functions, i.e. make them more transmissible and deadlier. It sounds a touch unethical, right? How could that possibly be helpful? Our government agreed and banned the practice. So what did Fauci and NIAID do? They pivoted and outsourced the gain of function research in coronaviruses, no less, to China to the tune of a $600,000 grant. You can see more details including the important timeline of these events in a documentary I have linked to the document. And I'm inserting here, the best single book about this is the Bregan's book called COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey. 
Mr. Fauci, you have explaining to do, and I hope the cameras are recording when you have to defend your actions. For now, let's turn our attention back to the virus. Number 15, the virus continues to mutate. Not only does the virus, like all viruses, continue to mutate, but according to world-renowned vaccine developer, Garrett Vanden Boschi, who you'll meet below if you don't know him, is it's mutating about every 10 hours. How in the world are we going to keep creating vaccines to keep up with that level of mutations? We're not. Might that also explain why fully vaccinated people are con continuing to catch COVID? Why, given that natural immunity, has why, given that natural immunity has never ultimately failed humanity, do we suddenly not trust it? Why, if I ask questions like the above or post links like what you find above, will my thoughts be deleted from all major social media platforms? That brings me to the next troubling problem I have with these vaccines. Number 16, censorship and the complete absence of scientific debate. I can't help but get snarky here, so humor me. How did you enjoy all those nationally and globally televised robust debates put on by public health officials and broadcast simultaneously on every major news station? Wasn't it great hearing from the best minds in science, virology, epidemiology, economics, and vaccinology from all over the world as they vigorously and respectfully debated things like lockdowns, mask wearing, social distancing, va vaccine efficiency, and safety trials, how to screen for susceptibility to vaccine injury, therapeutics, i.e. non-vaccine treatment options. Wasn't it great seeing public health officials who never treated anyone with COVID have their, quote, science questioned? Wasn't it great seeing the FDA panel publicly grill the vaccine makers in prime time as they stood in the hot seat of tough questions about products of which they have no liability? Oh, wait, you didn't see those debates? No, you didn't because they never happened. What happened instead was heavy-handed censorship of all but one narrative. Ironically, Mark Zuckerberg can question vaccine safety, but I can't. Hypocrite? When did the First Amendment become a suggestion? It's the First Amendment, Mark, the one our founders thought was the most important. With so much at stake, why are we fed only one narrative? Shouldn't many perspectives be heard and professionally debated? What happened to science? What happened to the scientific method of always challenging our assumptions? What happened to lively debate in this country, or at least in Western society? Why did anyone who disagrees with the World Health Organization or the CDC get censored so heavily? Is the science of public health a religion now, or is science supposed to be about debate? If someone says, quote, the science is settled, that's how I know I'm dealing with someone who is closed-minded. By definition, science, especially biological science, is never settled. If it was, it would be dogma, not science. Okay, before I get too worked up, let me say this. I want to be a good citizen. I really do. If lockdowns work, I want to do my part and stay home. If masks work, I want to wear them. If social distancing is, is effective, I want to comply. But if there is evidence they don't, masks, for example, I want to hear that evidence too. If highly credentialed scientists have different opinions, I want to know what they think. I want a chance to hear their arguments and make up my own mind. I don't think I'm the smartest person in the world, but I think I can think. Maybe I'm weird, but if someone is censored, then I really want to hear what they think. Don't you?
to all my friends who don't have a problem with censorship, will you have the same opinion when you get censured? Is censorship not the technique of dictators, tyrants, and greedy, power-hungry people? Is it not a science that those who are doing the censoring know that it's the only way they can win? What if a man who spent his entire life developing vaccines was willing to put his entire reputation on the line and call on all global leaders to immediately stop the COVID vaccines because of the problems with the science? What if he pleaded for an open scientific debate on the global stage? Would you want to hear what he had to say? Would you want to hear the, see the debate he's asking for? Number 17, a world-renowned vaccinologist is sounding the alarm. Here's what may be the biggest reason this COVID vaccine doesn't make any sense to me. When someone who is very pro-vaccine, who has spent his entire professional career overseeing the development of vaccines, is shouting from the mountaintops that we have a major problem, I think the man should be heard. In case you missed it, and in case you care to watch it, here is Garrett Vanden Bosch's explaining, number one, why the COVID vaccine may be putting so much pressure on the virus that we are accelerating its ability to mutate and become more deadly. Number two, why the COVID vaccines may be creating vaccine-resistant viruses similar to antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Number three, why, because of previous problems with antibody-dependent enhancement, we may be looking at a mass casualty event in the next few months to years. If you want to see or read about a second and longer interview, I put another link in there. If half of what he says comes true, these vaccines could be the worst nightmare of all time. If you don't like his science, take it up with him. I'm just a messenger, but I can speak to COVID personally. And injecting here, Robert Malone is another similar expert like this. He just got taken off of Twitter and was just reviewed on Rogan. And I think that's super important to watch when it comes out. Number 18, I already had COVID. I didn't enjoy it. It was a nasty cold for two days. Unrelenting, unrelenting butt and lower back aches. Very low energy, low grade fever. It was weird not being able to smell anything for a couple of days. A week later, coffee still tasted a little off, but I survived. Now it appears, as it always has, that I have beautiful, natural, lifelong immunity, not something likely to wear off in a few months if I get the vaccine. In my body and my household, COVID is over. In fact, now that I've had it, there's evidence the COVID vaccine might actually be more dangerous for me. That's not a risk I'm willing to take. In summary, the above are just my reasons for not wanting the vaccine. Maybe my reasons make sense to you and maybe they don't. Whatever does make sense to you, hopefully we can still be friends. I, for one, think there's a lot more than we have in common than what separates us. And this is signed by the author, Christian.